Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2017 festival, historians Maria Felina, Judith Devlin and Geoffrey Roberts, along with journalist David Aranovich, discuss the Russian Revolution. The episode is chaired by Hugh Linehan of the Irish Times and it was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 29th of September 2017. Yeah, just a little bit more information of who we have. An extremely, uh, to my mind, intimidatingly qualified panel to discuss this subject here today. Geoffrey Roberts is a professor at history, professor at history at University College Cork, and he's written extensively on on Russian history. Professor Judith Devlin, and thank you for stepping in at, at, at short notice. Also, is at the Department of History at UCD. Uh, Maria Felina is a DCU historian of modern and contemporary Europe, specialising in Eastern Europe. And David Aronovich is, like myself, a mere journalist. Uh, he's a Times of London columnist, a broadcaster, and an author. And he wrote a terrific book, which was published last year, which is called Party Animals, My Family and Other Communists, which is about growing up in a, in a communist environment. And uh, his parents were both members of the British Communist Party through quite a lot of the 20th century. Um, I was slightly intimidated when I was asked to share this subject because um, I said on Twitter earlier today, a nice, light, easy subject to start this festival of history, uh, something we can you know, easily bite off and chew uh, over the course of an hour or so on a, on a Friday evening. It is an enormous, enormous landmark in modern history. I'm conscious that, as the Lord Mayor mentioned, uh, here in, in this location and other ones around the city, we spent a lot of time only a year ago discussing uh, the Rising and 1916 and the revolution in Ireland. And it seemed to me that that was quite a, uh, quite a productive and an interesting process, which was, uh, which was very useful. And it, it, it caused me to think about what this 100-year mark means rather than just a sheer accident of mathematics. And given the average lifespan of the average person in the early 21st century, it seems to me that it does mark a, a kind of a point where not just the, the key protagonists in a historical event, but the children of those key protagonists have, have departed the stage and are no longer with us. And it allows us to look at these events perhaps in a, in, in a somewhat different way. And thinking about that and thinking about those experiences, the many events around 1916, which I, which I attended uh, last year, uh, I, I found myself perhaps parochially thinking about what Lenin thought about the 1916 rising. And uh, my colleague in the Irish Times, Ronan McGreevy, who's written a lot about this, sent me a, a very interesting piece which Lenin wrote in the wake of the 1916 rising. A lot of people on the left had seen that event as a sort of a, a nationalist putsch, which really had no meaning or relevance for the broader socialist struggle uh, of, the, of the proletariat. But Lenin disagreed, and let me just quote him for a minute. He said, it is the misfortune of the Irish that they rose prematurely before the European revolt of the proletariat had had time to mature. Capitalism is not so harmoniously built that the various sources of rebellion can immediately emerge of their own accord without reverses and defeats. On the other hand, the very fact that revolts do break out at different times in different places and are of different kinds guarantees wide scope and depth to the general movement. Now, in a way, that's typical of Lenin's turgid prose. But uh, in another way, it's an interesting way to start thinking about 1917 and why it happened in Russia, of all places. Uh, and I, first of all, I think I'd like to ask you, Judith, perhaps to set out the context before we start talking about the implications of what actually happened in the run-up and during the 1917 October Revolution. Oh, fine. Thank you for that. Um, sometimes I think if we look at, say, pictures of Tsar Nicholas, you know, you see this, these beautiful photographs of the royal family with the children around and etc. Um, and this sense of the 300-year-old Romanov dynasty uh, being toppled, you know, and 
when we get into it a little bit, then we realize that Nicholas himself was uh, you know, a man of very you know, benighted views. But fundamentally, I mean, it, it is a really shocking thing. And in a sense, we have forgotten how shocking it was that Nicholas, Tsar of all the Russias, etc., etc., has many, many titles, uh, the last representative of a dynasty that had been on the throne for 300 years, uh, that he was toppled and replaced within a year, within less than a year, uh, by Lenin. Lenin was, for most Russians at the day, an extremely obscure figure uh, on the extreme left, really, fundamentally, of the socialist movement in Russia. And the socialist movement itself was rather small. So there was nothing inevitable, really, about, at all inevitable, about the replacement of Nicholas uh, with Lenin. Um, and if we asked, how did that happen? How did uh, uh, Nicholas fall and fall so quickly? I think we might just deduce a couple of points about that. Uh, firstly, although the monarchy was of, of great age, if you like, it was certainly not a, a strong monarchy. It was, in fact, weak and unstable. And that was shown by the fact that, in fact, the 1917 revolution that we're commemorating now uh, with you know, the October Revolution um, was, in fact, the, the last of three revolutions. Uh, the first was in 1905 when the forces of um, the new forces that emerge in Russia as it modernizes in the late 19th century challenged the Tsar. And it challenged the Tsar because essentially he was ruling in the same way as the monarchs of the 17th century ruled. In other words, he was ruling by essentially divine right. He thought he ruled by grace of God. There were no parliaments. There was no parliament. There were no political um, parties, etc. until then. There were no civic liberties, fundamentally. And 1905 forced the Tsar to make some concessions in that direction but not, he didn't really honor them. And uh, one of the problems of his not really doing that was that he failed to build uh, political institutions, a political culture, political parties that might have been able to step into the vacuum that would emerge when the monarchy actually finally toppled, was toppled in, in the beginning of 1917. Um, so first of all, it's a weak monarchy. It's, it's presiding over an, an unstable society uh, and a very powerless, if you like, political regime. Second, there is a parliament, but it's very unrepresentative. It's highly polarized, uh, etc. Um, and the Tsar fundamentally sees himself as the man who makes all the decisions. This leads, of course, to a very frustrated political class, such as it is, the elites that are in the unrepresentative parliament. Um, and uh, the second thing it does is it means that all the failures of his government ultimately land at his door. He can't say it's my government, it's my incompetent ministers who might be replaced by a different team. Fundamentally, the Tsar bears responsibility for the inefficiencies of the system. Now, the second thing is that this was not a great situation to which to blunder into war. And the First World War puts enormous strain on the Russian economy and Russian society. Uh, you know, there's a vast number of re refugees. By 1917, there's something like six to seven million refugees as the Germans occupy m much of the western part of uh, European Russia. And if we think ourselves in the context of Syrian refugees in the last couple of years and the strains that has put on European society, it may help us to explain something of the context in which the revolution took place. Uh, the other is of you know, great uh, economic hardship borne by people in the factories and, of course, enormous war losses as well. We forget, apropos of the First World War, that Russian casualties are in fact estimated to have exceeded those of the French and the Germans. So essentially by the end of 1916, we're in a position where uh, even the Tsar's secret police is talking about in its reports back to, to the government uh, about the widespread uh, unpopularity of the monarchy, uh, of the criticisms, uh, not just among uh, the poor, but also among the political class, of course, uh, and even the generals felt that it was time for Nicholas uh, to be swept aside. And really, fundamentally, when uh, in, in Petersburg uh, there are riots over food shortages and bread shortages, which are joined by strikers, etc., within a matter of days, and about 12 days, in fact, uh, things have turned out that essentially, you know, there were these massive riots in the middle of the city, which the Tsar orders the, the army to put down, but in fact, eventually the army, within a matter of days, mutinies, and he's lost control of his capital. At that point, the political elite and the generals decide uh, it's time to remove him, to get him to abdicate. He does abdicate, uh, and he wants his brother to take over, but the brother doesn't want to. And so, really, in 12 days, and by default, almost by accident, Russia becomes a republic. And there's this great moment of euphoria in which you have, uh, if you like, liberty, freedom, the fall of the tyrant, etc., uh, is greeted. Um, and a new government comes into place. 
and in fact, this, just like the, the Nicholas had a double-headed eagle, in a sense, uh, the, the Russian government that replaces him is also double-headed, as a sort of sometimes called a dual power. You have two aspects to it. The leadership, political leadership, uh, the provisional government, as it calls itself, is drawn from uh, the Tsarist, unrepresentative Tsarist uh, parliament. And it's composed largely of you know, landed elites, business interests, etc. Men of genu genuinely liberal um, values, but essentially they, they want to fight the war on, they want to fight with the democratic allies. Uh, and there are quite strict limits to how far they're ready to um, go beyond a political revolution, if you like. But the other focus of the revolution, which the others I think will speak now, is just um, was the Soviet. Uh, almost immediately, uh, the, if you like, the working class and the soldiers essentially quickly form this or revive a body that emerged first in 1905, and that was the Pietrograd Soviet uh, Council, in other words. And they elect to it, uh, shortly there are about 3,000 deputies who are elected by soldiers' committees, workers' committees, and this is the focus of the popular revolution, the institutional arm, if you like, of the popular revolution. And it has one great advantage over the provisional government. The liberals in the provisional government do something like something a bit like a Baghdad moment. They abolish the Tsarist secret police. They allow, give an amnesty to political prisoners. Um, and very soon they actually don't have really very many you know, means of controlling what actually happens either in the, the capital or in the countryside. Um, Whereas, the, uh, to some extent at least, the Soviet has some command over the army by virtue of the fact that uh, soldiers' deputies really are, in theory, have some control over, are able to veto military orders, etc. So what we end up with in March is this kind of double-headed uh, new political powers. Liberal on the one hand in the provisional government, um, uh, and they're postponing all reforms because they want to fight the war. And the focus of the radical uh, popular revolution is in the Soviet, headed up by moderate Soviets. So we have, we have a vacuum, mm. Jeff, but mm. we also have an opportunity for certain political forces to take advantage of. And one of the things I always wonder, and people have remarked upon for, for a century, is that what happened did not conform to classic Marxist theory at the time, in that some of these, some of these strains were also happening in other countries three years into the First World War, and the nationalist sentiment wasn't just emerging in Ireland, it was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there were pressures within Germany, countries which were far more developed economically and had a large proletariat, but it was in Russia where these events happened. Maybe I could be, begin by picking up a, a point you made, you were talking about Lenin and 1916 in Ireland. I was just reading something the other day about what Stalin said about uh, the Irish Revolution, and he said, we support the Irish Revolution because it's a revolution against British imperialism. That was his perspective. Um, think about Russian Revolution because it wasn't a nationalist revolution. It wasn't a national revolution. It was a, a class-based revolution. It was a revolution against oppression, against um, capitalism. There was a kind of national element to it, particularly in the, the borderlands, but, but it, it was a class-based a, a class revolution. And also very much um, you know, an a revolution based on internationalism or an internationalist um, consciousness. I don't think there's any other revolution in history where internationalism is such a, a huge theme in popular consciousness at the time. And of course, you have to remember from the Bolsheviks' point of view, when they seize power in Russia, you know, they're not just seizing power in Russia, they're putting themselves in the forefront of what they consider to be an, a world revolution. You know, the, you know, the socialist revolution is going to sweep the whole, whole of the globe. What's happening in Russia is actually, in many ways, just a small part of that process. Okay, now what happens? Okay, so as Judith described, you know, uh, the, the, you know bizarre forms. Uh, provisional co government comes into power, and then there's a, a progressive kind of radicalization of the political situation, and not just the political situation, socially, culturally, psychology, in every way, that there's a radicalization of the situation. <clears throat> so by the time we get to the elections to the uh, Constituent Assembly in November 1917, 85% of the votes go to socialist parties. 85% of the votes go to socialist parties. By that time, the country um, is overwhelmingly uh, socialist uh, inclined. Now, the key question is, why is it that one particular group of socialists, one section of that socialist movement, the Bolsheviks, which actually, after all, only won 25% of the vote to the Constituent Assembly or, or, or thereabouts, why did they actually, why was it their kind of revolution? that triumphed in the end. And that, that's, that's the big question about 1970. But it, there's, there's a very simple answer to it. Yeah, mostly it's that. Oh, great. And it, well, well, Lenin. 
Yeah, it was Lenin's return to Russia, Lenin's intervention in Russian politics. The course he took the Bolshevik party on, his insistence on opposing the provisional government of all parts, Soviets, and then later on an insurrection to over it. It's Lenin. I think the the Russian Revolution is a classic case of how a single individual changed the course of of, of world, world history. Can I just follow up with two quick questions on that? One is, why in Russia was there such a huge vote for socialist parties when somewhat similar revolutions in other countries from the French Revolution onwards, particularly in rural areas, led to the rise of an agrarian political movement which wasn't in favor necessarily of collectivization but was in favor of taking the land for, uh, for the peasants for individual ownership. Mm. And the, the, the second question is, uh, are you saying, by what you're saying about Lenin, that the Russian Revolution was uh, uh, an extension or the result of force of will by an individual? I, 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 I think, you know, without Lenin, without Lenin's will, the outcome in Russia would have been complete, completely different. There would have been a revolution, an upheaval, but you wouldn't have got the result that we had, which did actually change and shape the whole. And, and it's actually, in my opinion, it's still shaping, you know, our, our, our history. At, at this very time. So that, that's the answer to that question. I think, in a way, yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, it's the system. It's kind of, a, it's an anti-establishment, anti-system thing, isn't it, yeah? And from both peasants and workers, you know, the Tsarist system and capitalism and oppression are all form part of a single kind of unity. So if you're going to oppose it, yes, it, 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 there's a natural kind of logic towards, uh, you know, an, an anti-system resistance. Uh, and, and challenge, there's a kind of anti-capitalist logic to it. So I think that's one part of the, the answer. The other part of the answer is, um, you know, the, you know, there's a whole history of the revolution. You know, the Russian Revolution of 1917 had, you know, a history, had mm. precedents, had roots, long-term roots. You know, 1905, 1906, there was another big revolutionary upheaval in Russia. You go back through the 19th century, you know, the whole history of the Russian revolutionary movement, okay, which for a large part of time was pretty marginal politically, but I think was still um, having its effect. And when uh, the opportunity came in the First World War to, um, you know, spread its ideas, expand its kind of political base, it was actually in a position to do so. So it's, it's a, 1917 is, is you know, a, a, a long-term uh, trend, as well as you know, a, a set of short-term uh, things that happen. Of a long process. But Maria seems to be listening to Jeff, that he's talking about an anti-capitalist revolution in a feudalist society, which is one of the you know, paradoxes of what happened in Russia. I mean, yes and no. I think, um, to pick up on the two points uh, that were made, one, that the Russian Revolution is not a national revolution but a kind of socialist, class-based, we can say, revolution. I mean, yes and no. I think the way how the history of the Russian Revolution has been told, it is indeed, like it's been told by the victorious side in Marxist kind of class terms. Uh, But if we look at actually what is happening in the borderlands, which many things happen, and, um, you know, from Latvia to Ukraine to Georgia, very strong socialist movements who are very successful in taking power on the ground, which are very nationally minded. And I think we have, like, if we're trying to understand the full picture here, we have to, you know, remember that there are things happening outside St. Petersburg and Moscow um, in the borderlands. So I think it's a, it's a more complicated story than just the story of... And how influential, it, because we, we, think of, we think of October 17 as Petrograd and yeah. all that kind of thing. So how influential on the overall narrative of what happens in the in the following months and years is what you're talking about well um i think it is if like if we extend the story if we don't stop it in october 1917 but we continue into the years usually referred to as the civil war then the national component becomes very important like a lot of the fighting happens um in the western borderlands so today's ukraine belarus Hmm. bits of Poland, which essentially is a combination of, you know, the whites, the reds, and all different kinds of national-minded groups that maybe want some sort of socialist revolution, but not necessarily Bolshevik revolution, and even if they want Bolshevik revolution, they don't want Russian Bolshevik revolution. So you have a complex it's, civil war. I'm not even sure if you'd describe it as a civil war, because there are different nations involved. Uh, well, I mean, they're all part of the collapsing Russian empire, hmm. or just the empire that has just collapsed. And, just, and we have to remember there's the... World War War front is, you know, still going back and forth. Look, the Russian Empire didn't collapse like the other empires. 
it lost some bits, Finland, Baltic states, yeah. and bits of territory. But mm. fundamentally, the Bolsheviks were able to keep intact the Russian Empire. And they were able to do that because they were able to, they were actually to reconquer, uh, re take, take over control of um, territory from various nationalist elements, yeah? And so, and that was on, on, a, on the basis of class-based politics. So I kind, I kind of agree with you. You're but right, I mean, I mean, the fact that the extent. Bolsheviks managed to suppress the national yes, yeah. revolution that shows doesn't their, mean that they didn't happen. And I think it's, it shows a, it's a very important part. Power. It's not just about military and force, it's about their political power, the power of their ideas. That's okay. the point I'm making. Sorry. Um, and then, to contribute maybe a little bit um, mm. to kind of half an answer to the question of why it happened in Russia and not elsewhere, mm. uh, we have to remember that Russia in the late 19th, early 20th century is economically fairly backward. It's primarily an agrarian society, and the mm. land issue has not been resolved. In the late, so uh, in the immediate 10 years prior to the 1917 revolution, there are several attempts by the imperial government uh, to implement various um, kind of formats of land reform. They're partially successful. Um, and then in 1917, why do they vote socialists? Uh, well, because the peasants and the majority of the population want the land. And in the peasant mentality, not just in Russia, but universally in Europe, uh, morally, only the person who toils the land has the right to it. Mm -hmm. Like the landlord morally. But that has manifested no itself rights. in other European countries in the form of peasant parties or agrarian parties, because not socialist parties or communist to parties. Because they had create a party. I mean, Russia did not have an opportunity for a legal political struggle. Sorry, because to follow on from what Marina is saying there, I think we should be aware of sort of saying that the discourse that we associate with Lenin, the ideology that, you know, Lenin's a graphomaniac. He spends his time in exile writing, you know, this, you know, defining what orthodox Marxism is according to him and why everybody else is wrong. But we should make a mistake, I think, if we thought that Lenin's ideas shape I think, um, uh, and that the, the revolution entirely. I take your point, but in terms of how did ordinary people in the revolution understand it? And the key element is, I think, agree, the peasants. The peasants' understanding of the revolution is not the same as that of Lenin. And the peasants, insofar as they're politicized, are politicized by the SRs, by the socialist revolutionaries. And that's that long tradition you're referring to of populism in Russia, which was, you know, agrarian socialism. Building, coming back to your earlier question on, on you know, so why does it not take the form of private property the way it did here? And that's because the, for the peasants in Russia, you know, they were organized in communes, and it was the commune held the land, not the individual peasant. And they actually liked this communal form of organization. And that was an idea taken up by the socialist revolutionaries, these agrarian socialists. So it was because of the nature of the social structure. It is, on, and, on, it was the the social, and the socialist revolutionaries are the people who won most I'm, votes I'm, in the constituent assembly in, in November 1918. Footnote that uh, the, throughout mm. the 19th century, early 20th mm. century, um, the Kind of major form of peasant mm. protest against the landlord uh, is not a political slogan, it's going cutting wood into the landlord's forest. Okay, great. Which is illegal. I'm conscious. David has been sitting yeah. there very patiently. He smiled at the mention of a footnote. Um, <laughs> <laughs> David, you grew, you grew up with this stuff. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what did I'm, you learn about the Russian Revolution? Yes, I, I'm, as you said, I'm the journalist, not the historian. And um, But I'm qualified, I think, to speak about what I believe they call in academia these days reception. Um, reception being the way in which something lives after itself uh, and gets turned into popular or historical conceptions of what a thing is. So um, I wrote this book about um, my parents and the British Communist Party. My father worked full-time for the British Communist Party for quite a long time, including most of my childhood, all of it, in fact. Um, and it was a very particular kind of existence. Anyway, so producer for last year was doing a, a discussion about it in Bristol, um, and a very, very, very uh, intelligent woman there who is an academic at Bristol, uh, whose uh, grandfather and uncles have been very senior members of the Communist Party in the East End, um, like my father, East End Jews from extremely impoverished backgrounds. Um, and she wanted to demur from what I'd said on one point, and she wanted to say that really, maybe Russia hadn't been that important to British communists. And I've, I thought this is really interesting because I think this is what you want to believe now, all these years later. But it's not true. Russia was absolutely central to any significant communist existence. And the October 1917 revolution was the great epochal event to which everything referred back. 
And Lenin, um, by this time, was the signal figure for world revolution to whom you looked, not just for, if you like, kind of inspiration about what could have been done in the past, but you actually examined his texts, you've been back to, 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 to have a look at them, for immense assistance about what you were supposed to do in the here and now. So we all read State and Revolution. Uh, and so on, and we regarded it, and Jeff, you probably did too, etc. Um, and regarded it as a kind of seminal text and try to work out how on earth you were supposed to implement this in the context of Britain in the late 70s, uh, and so on. With some um, difficulty, I'd imagine. Uh, with some difficulty, I'd imagine. With immense dexterity, <laughs> um, uh, as, uh, as quite often happens. But the, thing, the reason why I think she wanted to say that it hadn't been as important as it had been is if Lenin was the great kind of, you know, the leader, the, the, the figure, the great product of the Russian Revolution was Stalin. Stalin was the great product of the Russian Revolution in the end. Stalin and Stalin's Russia. When people began to think about what communism was, by the time you got to the 30s, they would, they would have Lenin Reif stuck on a plinth, but in practical terms, from the webs out to everybody else, uh, and, British, uh, and British Fabianism to everybody else, Stalin was the embodier, for good or for ill, of what the Russian Revolution had become. And what I think you sort of, you, we, we had gradually had was a kind of telescoping of the kind of immense scope of the idea of the proletarian revolution and the workers taking over. After all, the idea of the workers taking over means effectively that out in a kind of factory in Omsk, the people there decide what they want to make, how they want to make it, and how they're going to run their lives and everything. Um, well, it doesn't take a genius to work out that during Stalin's Russia, that pretty much wasn't what was, uh, what was going on. What you'd had was, for one reason or another, kind of telescoping um, we had a telescoping as communists. Eventually, what communism was and what the workers' revolution was telescoped itself down to what it was that the Soviet Union wanted and needed. That's what it gradually became. Until, by 1948, we were prepared, I wasn't alive then, but the British Communist Party, was prepared to ditch the Yugoslav communist leader Tito uh, and say that he was now a fascist spy, etc., was he'd been a huge hero up until about a month before, because he'd fallen out with Stalin about, about certain aspects of, uh, of, of independence and so on. So our movement had gradually been kind of pushed down into the question of what was in the interests of the Soviet Union one way or another. Um, and I f when... When I look back, and I was about some of the things that uh, we would, uh, that the Communist Party had been saying, one of the things I found interesting was the way in which, because we, we knew it had happened, the party itself had telescoped the idea of the working class gradually into itself and then into its leadership via the structures of the Communist Party, which it called democratic centralism and so on, which essentially was this. The leading revolutionary class, the class that was going to lead you to Nirvana, was the industrial working class. They were, if you like, the vanguard of the nation. The vanguard of the vanguard of the nation was the Communist Party. The vanguard of the Communist Party was going to be the political committee, etc., but actually on the whole in Russia, and at the top of the political committee would be Stalin. So this is what was written in the British publication, Labour Monthly, just before Stalin died. They didn't know he was about to die. It's an interesting film coming out soon on the death of Stalin. Mm -hmm. It's to be fun. So... Try to admire this as a piece of structure and so on, because this is where it was at. The editor of Labour Monthly, a guy called Arpan Dutt, who was a very, very senior uh, communist figure, wrote, Marxism is a science alike in the, theory, uh, in the field of theory and action. And precisely because it is a science, and all the more because it represents the highest level of science, it requires mastery. And mastery, you really honestly admire this, implies a master. <laughs> Marxism finds its expression in the living person and its highest expression in the greatest head, that central figure, the genius whose perfect understanding and whose theoretical and practical leadership most effectively carries forward to the fulfilment of Marxism. Three guesses for who that's supposed to be <laughs> uh, 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 by this time. Um, and in a way, that takes us back to Jeff's point about, uh, about Lenin, because it's an interesting one. What a profoundly un-Marxist figure Lenin is if he creates on his own a revolution 
um, in one of the biggest and most diverse countries um, uh, in the world. It was a problem that we never really solved. Oh, we still not okay, solved it. that's very, I, didn't, I knew we were going to get to Stalin and Stalinism, I didn't know we were gonna to get to it so powerfully and quite so early. So let me bring that point which was bound to emerge, Judith, back a little bit and, and take David's mm -hmm. critique, which is essentially that within the seeds of the events of October 1917 uh, are the creation of a totalitarian monster. Uh, some argue equivalent to the other totalitarian monsters of the 20th century that the, 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 the mass, that, that the, for example, the famine in the Ukraine was equivalent to the genocides of Hitler, that the terror was as, as bad as what was happening in Germany, that, that all these things were there from the beginning within the way and the individuals who created the revolution. Fine. Well, I have, I have to Easy say... Question. Yeah, that is, yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. two minutes. I, I, I do think that's a fascinating quote, by the way. I'd love to come back to it. But anyway, um, just to come back to what, what you said. It's right. It's kind of a terrifying So, quote, really. um, yeah, 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 but I, I love it. Mm -hmm. But it's quite easy to understand, in a sense. And you know, why did people believe, you know, outside Russia in the, the potential of this revolution? In, the, in you know, at the end of the the twenties, when you have the crash, or after the war, with the role that the, you know the party, the communism, uh, had played in, in the resistance to Hitler. So uh, you know, the, well, that, that's a context. In, term, in terms of David's, mm. David's mm. point, I hope I'm not paraphrasing mm. him wrongly, mm. that the whole question mm. of the revolution as an act of will by an mm. individual. Yes, yes, a sort of Nietzschean thing. Um, well, the classic interpretations, when you call warrior history, historians would be uh, essentially this all sprang out of the head of Lenin, uh, the ideology, and always embraced notions like class warfare, dictatorship of the proletariat, etc., etc. That was in, in, you know, implicitly, uh, in fact, explicitly, um, you know, in, in embraced coercion. Um, another, uh, to my mind, more persuasive way of looking at it is to say, well, circumstance, uh, as in in the, in the year 1970. Actually, the Lenin shows that he, alone of all socialists, in fact, all the political actors, is the only person who adapts to circumstance and thinks politically and can change. Um, and uh, well, the, anyway, the other way of looking at it is to say, well, circumstance is what matters. It's the civil war uh, that helps to create a somewhat militarized uh, political culture uh, that creates the way the, uh, the party, the Communist Party, is actually institutionalized, very centralized, uh, very much command and control. Um, but you know, and out of that also comes the practices like the foundation of you know the Red Terror, um, etc. Constant first concentration camps are associated with Lenin, um, and of course you have the Czech our, our secret police are actually founded shortly after. In fact, they take part. Now it's true that Lenin, of course, always you know em embraced the need for as all the, the leadership did for dictatorship. But they saw it as I think a short-term thing uh, to get rid of their you know sort of the, the, their very fierce opponents. And in the context of Russia, it made sense because. Um, you know, Tsarism had been extremely violent too. We shouldn't forget that. So th they were less squeamish about violence. And then, of course, they're to some extent brutalized during the Civil War. But note we have a difference. We have the whole 1920s when the place is much more pacified, when they're trying to find the way forward. And the whole question really is, how did Marx, you know, what did Marxism, how, how once you were in power, did you actually get to socialism? And that's the great debate of the 1920s. Um, and Stalin ultimately opts for, uh, you know, he's, he's the dominant figure in the Politburo uh, at that stage. Uh, it's a one-party state throughout the 1920s, one should say. But he, he opts for a kind of model of socialism uh, which really goes disastrously wrong. Um, and he pushes it through with the ultimate ferocity. And I think it's that period myself of the uh, first five-year plan uh, that is actually definitive in shaping Stalinism. It's, uh, you know, brutal, uh, the absolute brutality of it. Uh, they find themselves, you know, they, they're trying to push the, the policy through. And it, it leads them, and, and they fall back on, of course, their civil war uh, techniques. Um, and before long, they're actually, you know, they, they realize... And the, the five-year plan just... It's a disaster. Uh, well, it involves collectivization, uh, forced collectivization of agriculture. Uh, that leads... I mean, appalling practices go on. It leads uh, to the deportation of so-called wealthy farmers, kulaks, as they're called, uh, of whom it's, it's, it's estimated something like just short of 400,000 of these die in exile in Siberian colonies. Um, also, you have... You know, it precipitates a famine with... 
four to seven million deaths, depending on you know different estimates of it. Um, and in a sense, I think that after that, also the, the actual industrialization, also, you know, there's vast amount of movement of population. It's, I think, unprecedented levels of urbanization, of mobility. There's, it's, it's unimaginable uh, social chaos, um, the shattering of an old society, accompanied by appalling brutality and cruelty. Uh, and I think that... Uh, really that experience, you know, having embarked on it, they were afraid to go back. They pressed forward and uh, became, you know, really uh, perpetrated appalling crimes. And, but it's the, the logic of, I think, the first five-year plan, in my own view, that, that leads them into ever greater coercion and to ever greater... Then they realise, of course, that the public, large chunks of it, the peasantry in particular, are against them, to ever greater, the critics within the party, to ever greater coercion. And I think it's, it's part of the logic Jeff, for the terror. You, you, you've written extensively on Stalin, I know. What yeah. do you think of that line from the revolution to Stalin and to what's described there? Well, I think it's very complicated, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, Judith's right. I mean, okay, what comes out of the 1917 revolution is in a kind of authoritarian state socialism, but that surely had something to do with the civil war that, you know, it happens between the revolution and the emergence of the Soviet regime in the early 1920s. And in the 1920s, you actually get a fairly liberal... Okay, it's authoritarian, but it's quite a liberal kind of thing, actually, culturally, quite, quite so openly. There's a kind of golden age there. And then, then you do get Stalin, you get Stalin yeah. on the brutality. Okay, it's very brutal, it's horrific and all that. But it's also uh, quite successful in its own terms, you know? Stalin saves the Soviet regime, the Bolshevik power, the country is industrialised, when the Second World War comes along, it's the Soviet Union, of course, that defeats Nazi Germany. And after the war, uh, the economy is reconstructed, uh, the USSR becomes a superpower, an atomic power, you know, and the Russian Revolution is a revolution that persists for more than seven decades, you know, more than... So, uh, you know, it depends on what your criteria for success mm. and, uh, and failure is. I just want to respond to what David was saying, because when, when myself and David, uh, you know, you know, our generation of, uh, of communists and our wing uh, of the, the Communist Party, which was broadly referred to as Eurocommunism, uh, I mean, we, we, we re well, sorry, the idea, we, we repudiated Lenin and, you know, we repudiated violent revolution. Our concept was peaceful road to socialism, democratic transformation of capitalism. That was our, our concept. And, and one of the reasons we had that perspective, because we saw the brutal consequences of the Russian Revolution and the brutal consequences of a politics and ideology in which, you know, the end is deemed to be more important than the means, whereas our perspective was, was that how you struggle for socialism will determine the character of the system uh, that, 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 that you end up with. Maria, I was, I was, I was speaking earlier um, to Robert Harris, who will be here uh, a little later on and talking about the Munich Agreement, which is, he's just written a, a, a novel around, and he was talking about the difficulty we have in placing ourselves in a moment when we're looking back through a prism of, in that case, 79 years or so, in, in this instance, 100 years, that we look back through the prism of all the things, good and bad, often bad, that happened since, and we sense some kind of historic inevitability that wasn't necessarily there. And I look at the, the October Revolution and the, the brutal civil war which followed, and then a sort of a moment of potential and of flowering, very interesting cultural moment in many ways. And is, is there another way in which this could have gone? Um, well, we'll never know, will we? Um, no. I, <laughs> I think, though, that you know, not having been exposed to um, British Communist Party, but um, having grown up in the Soviet Union, mm. um, if it's very difficult for me to accept the inevitability of Stalinism coming, you know, being born in 1917, because then, you know, the entire country is doomed, and I can just go and shoot myself in the head because that's it. So, kind of, I would like to think that different options were there. It's just bad option was selected. Mm. And I think if we look closely at what's happening in the 1920s, like Judith was um, saying, you know, the period of the new economic policy and NAP, you know, between the end of the civil war and war communism and uh, beginning of the first five-year plan and collectivization is the time of, you know, this economic experimentation and relaxing of some of the very harsh measures. So people are allowed, you have small businesses, yeah, people small are, businesses, are more economically yeah. free. Yeah, and so it's basically um, introduction of some elements of market capitalism uh, in, mm. within this ideological framework of socialism and socialist revolution. And it starts as a temporary measure. But, you know, 
second half of the 1920s, there are discussions within the Communist Party about like, well, you know, it's going okay. Like maybe we can keep it, you know, still as a temporary measure, but for a little bit longer. Hmm. And this is when Stalin comes in in 1928 and he says, no, like we are instituting the great leap forward and the radical break with the um, experimentations and we are kind of reversing to the very harsh kind of orthodox Marxist And how does that methods. process work? Is that a sort of a coup at the top of the party or is it a broader political movement to... I mean, probably it's, it's, Jeff will be it's, better positioned to answer. It's a response to circumstances. Yeah. Okay, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a crisis in relation between town and countryside yeah. of food supplies, yes? And so, and, and it's not just an economic problem, it's a political problem. It's a problem of political control of the countryside, right? So Stalin responds to that in a particular way um, yeah, by, by collectivization. And that's about political control of the peasantry rather than economics. The other thing is, of course, the international situation. Ever since the Civil War, the Bolsheviks, Stalin, uh, were, were fearful that you know, the capitalist world, the imperialist world, was going to attack the Soviet Union again. In fact, in 1927, there's this huge um, war scare uh, in the Soviet Union, which the leadership looks at its um, defence industries. It's, it's, uh, and, um, you love that, that microphone. We're very vulnerable. So, so the, 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 you know, the, the Stalin's revolution, yeah. social political control, more radical socialism, so it's very much connected to the international situation or his perceptions. The Stalin's famous speech, you know, uh, you know, backward Russia must, must make good the lag, uh, the lag between we're ten years behind the capitalist. No, we're behind the capitalist countries. We must make good this lag in ten years, or, or they're going to crush us. Yes. So the international context is, is very. Very and do you think he was right about that? No, uh, no, because the, 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 the threats were, there certainly was hostility and there were issues, but there was no, there was no war for it. But on the other hand, of course, what's happening in, in the capitalist world in the 1920s? You've got the Wall Street crash, you've got this massive crisis. You've got authoritarian, populist, fascist, Nazi movements arising all the way across Europe. Uh, there's stuff going on out there, which is very dangerous from the Soviet point of view. So, you know, you can look back in retrospect and judge him to have, you know, uh, got it wrong in many, many ways, but that's very Easy, easy judgment to make from uh, from the present day. Well, I wonder then, David, does that move towards Stalinism, state socialism, authoritarianism, does it to some extent mimic what's happening in Germany and Italy and other countries? Is it part of a broader international trend outside of the socialist movement? I, I know that at the around the time of following the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was quite a popular thesis among some of your, your, your contemporaries, which was that totalitarianism of the left and right were somehow equivalent. Um, uh, I've never been quite convinced of that. I mean, apart from anything else, when, we, when we're here to commemorate the centenary of the 1923 Beer Hall Putsch, I doubt I'll be joined by a couple of ex-Nazis uh, to discuss it. So there is some kind of qualitative way in which we make a different judgment about them. As I think, given how things are going here, you're being optimistic. Well, maybe. This. <laughs> <laughs> um, the question of inevitability is obviously one that kind of dogs us all. What was the key ingredient which led to X happening or Y happening? And uh, the context is, uh, is very important. Um, but as far as I can see, from very, very early on, and, and Jeff talks about rightly, and we all talk about the Civil War rightly, but actually the Civil War probably was a relatively inevitable consequence of the revolution, actually, unless you believe that the other people who were going to be completely put out and evicted, so were going to turn around and say, yeah, it's all right, then we're off, uh, and so on. So they weren't likely to say that, so it, was going to, so it was going to happen. And the structures of an idea of both coercion and physical liquidation and elimination were very strongly Leninist concepts. Lenin was a big liquidator. He was a big kind of writer on things, let's kill a few more, because in order to show people what, what they've got to do. And it was well, and, and the end of the popular uh, um, uh, experimentation phase was well over by the time Lenin uh, was dead, uh, really. It was, it was already effectively over. Um, and I think this was, you know, I call it you know, a form of substitution whereby, uh, if you like, uh, now Ferguson's got this new book out, which I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to review at the moment, and essentially looks at the uh, uh, networks versus hierarchies. It's quite an interesting way of looking uh, at the world. In a sense, socialism was supposed to be a network. That's what it was supposed to be. And what it was from the earliest days was the tightest possible hierarchy. And that was absolutely implicit in Lenin's view of the world, actually. Whatever his rhetorical 
claim upon, you know, on a Marxist view of, of what communism and the process of communism would look like. His actual view of the world was incredibly tightly focused and tightly controlled. And when you say and socialism there, you mean communism, Marxist-Leninism? Yeah, I, I mean communism, Marxist-Leninism. And that, and that, to a substantial extent, mirrored the, uh, obviously, the, the ideological growth of far-right movements, which were also um, but much more obviously explicitly hierarchical. In other words, they actually said they were this thing. They glorified the, hierarchy. Yeah, whereas the Communist mm. Party didn't. And, you, and I, I, that, that quote I gave you was a, was a kind of way of this person trying, in a way, to square that circle. Judith and then Jeff. Sorry, Judith and then Jeff. Okay, John, just to, to argue against that for a second, to some extent, or just to try to contextualise it. Um, you know, yes, of course, we have lots of, you know, Lenin's, you know, bloodthirsty, sanguinary orders during the Civil War, executing a few hundred peasants here, there, like you know, that village. Um, sure. I, I think we have to put it in a context. This is all happening. We're now talking about the Civil War, 1918, 1920, fundamentally. Um, you know, against the backdrop of the First World War and the millions of dead in that. Um, these were people, we're talking more generally perhaps also about the Bolshevik leadership and their embrace of violence, their attitude to dictatorship and, and the use of force in this period. Um, as I said before, you know, there was the context of the, the Tsarist state and uh, its repression of its opponents, which was quite fierce too. I mean, nothing on the scale of this, but it was still pretty nasty on occasion. Um, and fundamentally, I think it's easy for us to forget, you know, so why, why were they invoking the Soviets uh, are, you know, sort of disparaging parliaments. Well, you know, parliaments were not generally or, or universally, A, that representative. B, um, even those that were, had signed off on the First World War. These were the people who'd sent generation of young men to be uh, doomed, essentially, in war. Um, so Lenin is operating in that particular context, and I think that has, and, and so, so do Trotsky, etc. Mm. So we have to remember, these, they actually, in the State and Revolution, for example, he's writing about, uh, you know, sort of what it will be like later, there will be full worker control, the workers will run the state, etc., etc. So um, Lenin isn't always a consistent, um, and as for the Bolshevik leadership's attitude to violence, I think we have to contextualize it, at least in this period. Because after all, the 1920s showed that they didn't, you know, pursue that kind of uh, policy. Sorry, afterwards. Jeff. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a great fan of Lenin. So I, mean, I gave up on Leninism about 1976, as far as I, I recall. Um, you find lots of different stuff in Leninism, including you know the, the elements uh, that they've identified. But there's other stuff as well. You know, there are di there's different possibilities inherent in Lenin's thinking, his political practice, the tradition he comes in. And I don't think the outcome is not in, in an inevitable. In terms of the civil war. No, the Civil War wasn't inevitable. The Civil War happens because the, the opponents of the Bolsheviks try to overthrow the Bolshevik regime by force, and they do it in association with uh, foreign powers, external powers. And the, re the reason they do that, what actually begins the, the Civil War struggle, it happens after the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, uh, March 1918, where the Bolsheviks signed a separate peace with Germany, Austria-Hungary, taken Russia out of the war. To do that, they'd had to give up a lot of um, uh, Russian uh, territory. So you know, the, the, the violent revolt of the, that starts the Civil War is is actually a revolt against peace, against the brest Treaty. So, so I, I, don't, I don't accept that the, the Civil War uh, were, you know, uh, was inevitable uh, at all. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think perhaps Marina and I might agree. Mm. Just essentially, um, uh, the Bolsheviks almost immediately prescribe opposition parties, opposition papers, etc., etc. They, by the spring and early summer of 1918, they've washed democracy in the Soviets too. So, um, this, this, you know, is this is all post, post com no, the armed conflict, I mean, the armed revolt, yes. No, no, it isn't post. Very important mm. to remember that mm. there is the Allied intervention mm. in the North and in mm. the Far East, yeah. and um, there is a very. If you look at the rhetoric of the Russian Civil War, there's a very interesting shift because until October 1917, like early 1918, uh, the, the, this, this whole conspiracy of Bolsheviks being the German spies, you know, because Lenin and his comrades are shipped into the sealed train through Germany from Switzerland and you know like are they really patriotic are they not patriotic and then when the intervention happened happens it's the reversal of the rhetoric because now the Bolsheviks are protecting the country against the foreign invasion mm. and you know plus we have to remember and it keeps the, the the memory of this is very much alive throughout the 1920s we have to remember 1920s everywhere in Europe is very anti-communist so kind of the idea, you know, war scare 1927, maybe the war would not have happened, but you know, they had very good reasons to be afraid that you know, the environment is very hostile. 
towards them. And, and, and the interesting part about you the, the, the Bolsheviks is the patriots during the Civil War. Yeah. Of course, that continues. You know, the, 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 during the Civil War, what happens is that there's the beginning of this reinvention of Bolshevism. It's not just being communist and socialist, but actually being patriotic, yes? A patriotic yeah. political movement. Yeah. And that's one of the keys to their enduring power. And also, of course, it's one of the keys yeah. as to why they're able to win the great Absolutely. patriotic war on the basis of... Um, a patriotic mobilization. So in what way, Maria, and I think you're maybe the best person to answer this, should we look at the revolution as a Russian phenomenon, as opposed to the internationalist 10 days that shook the world, which we, which we began in, in terms of understanding it? Um, how long do I have? <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's a Russian phenomenon, you know, because it, you know, it happened in Russia and it's impossible, like, we can think of the what ifs for as long as we um, would like, but like we cannot take it out of the context, not just the First World War, but also the late imperial um, Russian history, and then the consequences, you know, be it Stalinism or everything else that followed, and the history of the Soviet Union. None of this is possible without the events uh, of the 1917. In this sense, it is very Russian. Um, but it's not the only revolution that happens in 1918 in Europe. There is the German Revolution, there's the very brief Hungarian Revolution with Balakun, who actually manages to establish a Soviet Communist Republic in Hungary uh, very briefly mm -hmm. uh, yet. So I think there is, um, it's, a, it's a wave of these revolutionary moments that happen, you know, not just in Russia, but, you know. But in the long term, else. when we look at, um, when we look at events as they unfolded through the 20s, 30s and beyond. And perhaps now in 2017 and in Russia itself, what is Russia's relationship to the revolution? Today? Yeah. Well, in the contempt, the current regime is trying to avoid the first revolution as much as they can, because any sort of revolution is perceived <laughs> as a fundamental threat. Mm -hmm. So um, there are very few um, official sort of commemorations or anything. Interestingly enough, there is a lot of grassroots, very interesting intellectual, cultural, social projects which are not directed by the current government. Um, and trying to understand the roots um, of the revolution, what happened between February and October, uh, was Stalinism inevitable, what are the seeds of the terror already in 1917. So there is a lot of this um, kind of various approaches um, trying to make sense of what happened and what we've learned um, over the hundred years, uh, but it's been done you know, against. To, to what extent, David, did your parents, true believers, to what extent were they really Rus working for the Russian national interest rather than for world revolution? I think for, I think they saw these things up until probably Khrushchev's speech to the 20th Party Congress in 1956 as synonymous. They don't believe that there had been a mass Stalin purge that was mistaken. They didn't believe that the show trials were show trials. They thought they were real. And they not only believed that about the Stalin show trials of the 30s, they believed it about the show trials in Eastern Europe of the 1940s and 50s, including show trials of people that some British communists had known as Czech and other exiles in London, um, which is, I deal with in the book, it's, it's, it's very difficult to forgive. Uh, all the way through, in a sense, they'd said that the account that was given of the Soviet Union in the British press uh, and by British uh, pedagogues and so on were lies, uh, were lies, essentially just lies. Um, and there's something very close to the kind of present formulation we have about fake news and so on. And they had a, I put it in the book as well, a version of Russian history which tied up all those kind of, which tied up all those kind of events. And then in 1956, and not in a secret speech, Khrushchev, who was uh, Stalin's almost successor, there were a couple of people came in between very quickly and so on, said, all that stuff that you have been saying about how Stalin didn't do those things was shit. It was all rubbish. Uh, and actually, not only did he do them, but he actually did some worse stuff as well. Actually, Khrushchev even said that Stalin did some stuff that Stalin probably didn't do, as it happens. Uh, and so on, just to kind of throw it in for good measure. Uh, and not only that, he gave it as a secret speech, and the first time that British communists actually saw it printed out was in The Observer. 
was in the Observer. Now, can you imagine what it's like? You have fought your entire political life stating that these are all lies, etc., and then you have to read in one of the organs of the capitalist press before you've even had a chance to get your line out on it, uh, and so on. You read that it was all true, and it caused a complete meltdown, a psychological meltdown. Not Hungary. People talk about Hungary. Hungary was a kind of after afterthought to the to, 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 to the secret speech. Anybody who could stay in the British Communist Party after Khrushchev's speech had a hide of a rhinoceros, and mm. you've got to admire it, and so on. But up until after that point, so, so they began driving? working far more for a different concept of what it was to be. Well, you must have a very thick skin, David, since you you joined the party in the 1970s. 20 years I think, after. I, think I think we all know that David has a very thick skin. <laughs> there is, I can hear some restlessness in the audience from from one member of the audience. So we we want to do want to give the opportunity to ask a couple of questions while we have the time. We have about 10 minutes or so. Please raise your hand and wave it frantically in the air because I'm half blind. Uh, here we go. A microphone will be brought to you. Very quickly, two points. One is... Questions rather than points, yeah, just possible. I'll, make, I'll ask a question, but just to make the context for the question. Um, if you take the revolution has been completely dependent on Lenin, if you take it to an absolute reductio ad absurdum, you end up by concluding that unless if, if Lenin's brother hadn't been executed, there wouldn't have been a Soviet um, revolution. Because you could just argue that Lenin's motivation for a revolution came as revenge for family um, distress out of that. And you have to therefore look for broader reasons for how the revolution came about. The second point is, and this for David, and I was very close to the Communist Party in London, the kind of Communist Party he was talking about, you're airbrushing out completely probably the most distinguished school of history that came out of the second half of the 20th century in Britain, which was the Communist Party history group. And these were not Stalinists of that kind. They were extraordinary imaginative people like Eric Hobsbawm, Edward Thompson, Christopher Hill, Ralph Samuel. You know, it's a caricature to, to draw all the communist movement through that way. So I would argue that, and secondly, by the way, the Russian Revolution wasn't just a British phenomenon inside the Communist Party of the French and for a time inside the German. So that is my point. On the point about Russia not being... Um, I think it is true to say the internal events in Russia never figured with inside the communist movement in Britain. You didn't talk about them. That was how it was done. Um, it was completely about its external relations. Internal things were um, ignored. So I would ask for the, a response to the creativity as well as the destructiveness, both of Leninism and of the Communist Party in terms of, for instance, the history group. Okay, I'll try and distill those down while we wait for another hand up and perhaps it's more, most, most to David. So the question that the history of British communism is, is a broader one. Oh, no, but that's for sure. I mean, let's get absolutely clear. If you were a British communist, it was for quite a long period, uh, 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 particularly post, but before the war as well, it was to take the side of unpopular causes um, uh, quite often in a kind of um, extraordinarily courageous fashion. There's no two ways about that. So, to give you a small example, Jeff would be aware of it as well. When plenty of people in the Conservative Party or elsewhere were going on about how actually black people in South Africa didn't particularly want the vote because they'd rather live in kind of bantam stands, etc. That was not a position that was like to appeal to the Communist Party. So it was anti-racist uh, and, and a bit feminist avant la lettre, I mean, before, before everything else. And there were immensely brave and courageous and very innovative people in it. And sometimes you had this odd kind of combination of the Stalinist on the one hand and the Bohemian sitting next to them because they both saw themselves as kind of knocking against conventional society. Now, the Communist Party history group you talk about is an interesting example of that because, of course, they went in different directions following uh, 56. Edward Thompson, E.P. Thompson you talk about, had himself been a Stalinist. Read his first edition of his book about William Morris, and you see it's got quotes from Stalin in it. Why would you have quotes from Stalin in a biography of an English socialist who died at the early part of the 19th century? Well, you did it because you were kind of, you know, you were buying down the higher authority, etc. And yet, his making of the English working class is one of the great books of historio of, of, of English working class historiography. Well, what does that tell us? What that tells us is that people can be two, three, four, or five things at the same time. I am, you are, we all are. I think that's definitely true. Do we have somebody else over here? Two questions. Um, so the first one is, I'd like to com I would like you to comment on, on, a, on, a, on a comment by Karl Polanyi, who was a uh, an Hungarian democratic socialist and uh, an economic historian of 19th century Britain. 
um, who was also a commentator of the time. And he said that basically the Russian Revolution has to be seen, the Leninist Revolution has to be seen as an attempt to impose a democratic culture and a democratic uh, society on a country that doesn't know what democracy is, and hence the brutality of the experiment. Then the second question is, um, um, Eric Hobsbawm, which was uh, f uh, sort of uh, mentioned before, uh, made a parallel between uh, Lenin's NEP, New Economic Policy, and Gorbachev's uh, Perestroika, and so the economic reforms that, was carried, that were carried out by Gorbachev in the 80s. To what extent are these two uh, processes uh, similar? Uh, thank you. Thank you. Those, those are two very interesting questions, but probably need relatively brief answers, I'm afraid. I suppose the first one, um, who would like to, like to take that, the, the, the question of trying to impose a democratic structure on a society which wasn't democratic. When I was doing my little bit of research on this in advance, I went around looking at various websites which are commemorating the revolution. Many of them uh, are, be, are being run clearly by you know, Marxist, contemporary Marxist-Leninists, and they, they make the statement again and again that the system of Soviets was the most democratic form of government ever ever invented, which as a decaying social democrat I found hard to accept. But maybe there is a point there that within the Russian context it was, it was the only way to, to bring some form of democracy to that society. Well, I suppose one could, uh, just to jump in and perhaps I see what other people think, but I mean, um, certainly one can see the Soviets as an experiment in democracy, and it was certainly seen, and perhaps this is the way to, to look at it, um, by people at the time as, democra uh, as democratic. Um, there are some historians who have said, oh, we should be very aware of, uh, well, you know, sort of beware perhaps of investing these terms, um, democracy, liberty, etc., but especially democracy, um, with the meaning, um, the same meaning as they have for us, the people at the time, uh, and they question as to whether really uh, the workers, the peasants really understood democracy in these terms. But I think there's quite a lot of evidence that the workers did understand, uh, had an understanding of what we might call some form of democracy in that sense of you know, self-government, of control, some degree of control over their own fate. And the Soviets were an experiment uh, in doing that. Not a, not a very long-lasting one in, in any real sense, perhaps, but uh, that would be one thought, perhaps. Maria? Yeah, you would have experienced perestroika yes. as, a, as a young woman. Um, how do you think it compares to the National Economic Plan? <laughs> <laughs> I got um, all the good questions this evening. <laughs> um, I don't know actually how to answer that. Um, could, I, could I please go? Mm -hmm. I first go mm -hmm. about the democracy though. Mm -hmm. um, I think they connect. Um, I think. The question of whether the Russian Revolution you know, is fundamentally, did it bring democracy and did it install democracy forcefully, um, um, points to one of the biggest contradictions of the revolution. Like there, is, there are democratic measures that are being uh, implemented. Uh, women are granted the vote. You know, that's the first country in Europe to grant women the vote. Uh, you know, yet the Bolsheviks dissolve the Constituent Assembly. Like it lasts for one day. So like, hey, there you have a way to you know, follow the procedure and they don't follow it. Hmm. Um, so I think we can't, there's no way around the ambiguity. It's, it's ambiguous, it's, like, it's yes and no. Um, and I think the same would be true for perestroika as well. You know, it's, uh, from a democratic point of view, yes, it brings freedom and um, you know, all the good things that we associate with um, you know, having the vote and the lack of the totalitarian regime. It also brought a lot of misery and hardship onto people and mm -hmm. I think it depends whether, you know, are you, what kind of price you're willing to pay for freedom, but also what kind of price you're willing to pay for stable life. So, so. Did, both, did both of those programs contain within them paradoxes which couldn't be resolved? Um, I think they evolved in a paradoxical way, and I'm, I'm not sure they contained paradoxes necessarily. Actually, Jeff's trying to get into that. Yeah, there's an interesting point to be made about Perestroika and Gorbachev, you know. How was it possible? You know, uh, perestroika, okay, there was an economic bet to it, but basically it was about political reform, democratization. How is it possible you get a Soviet leader like that come along and do what he did? Mm. You have to understand the nature of the Soviet system and it's all its complexities in order to answer that question. Because, you know, Gorbachev was a true product of the Soviet, of the Soviet system. He was part of the Soviet tradition. And what he did, he, he took certain elements of that tradition and utilised them politically to get this big change going. And of course, one of the most strongest elements of the Soviet tradition on paper, in constant theory, was that the Soviet Union was a democratic society, the most democratic society in the world. It was socialist democracy. They were forever having campaigns about 
participation, for more socialist democracy, against the bureaucracy. All this stuff was going on all of the time, yeah? Um, so what Gorbachev did, he came along and he said, look, let's make a reality about our democratic ideals, about our commitment to socialist democracy. Let's really become a true uh, de uh, socialist democracy. And, 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 and of course, what happens as a result of that is that he destabilizes the whole system and the system itself collapses. The clock is ticking on us. We might take this one more question over here. I was just wondering if anybody on the panel thought that the, the liberal attempts at revolution, either in 1905 or the February Revolution in 1917, if there was anything worthwhile about those, since liberal democracy is what most people today would want for themselves. Hmm. Good question. David. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, speaking as the non-historian, it's one of those kind of things that you want to think, really, because if you come to be thinking that Lenin's revolution was essentially flawed after having had it. I mean, on my 15th birthday, a friend of mine drew me a picture of Lenin, a painting of Lenin, and gave it to me on my 15th birthday. That's how kind of, so it was all a bit hard to kind of give up on Lenin. So if you give up on something, you always want to kind of take up something else. Um, but the trouble is that the leaders of the February 1917 revolution are not easy people to take up, and nor is their situation easy. And we've heard a, a discussion about it, uh, about it earlier uh, and so on. Um, perhaps if there hadn't been a bloody great First World War going on, um, they might have managed it. But there was a First World War going on, and they couldn't deal with the, under, with the central question. In fact, it might even have been that a significant number of the Russian people changed their minds about this actually within the process and left them high and dry. In the end, they were left supporting the continuation of the war, and fatally for them, Lenin captured the mood of that moment by being against so actually it can't in the end though I want it to and I want to kind of have you know kind of Kerensky light movement you know after all he was supposed to be a social democrat um in the end I can't rework history to the extent of getting there and it could never really have happened you think from what you're saying no, I mean, the, the, the catastrophe of the First World War is probably more than the Russian Revolution by a considerable degree, the thing that actually shaped the, disaster, the, the disasters and Europe's response to the disasters. Um, the, second, the First World War is the thing, uh, actually, it seems to me. I kind of think it was the, the liberals. Okay, David's obviously right. Yeah. The, the, the position on the war is crucial. The liberals' big mistake in seventeen was they continued with the war. The Bolsheviks were against it. That was huge to their part of their popular plurality. But I think the second biggest mistake was the liberals, or certain among them, you know, took up arms against the Bolsheviks in the civil war. I think if they hadn't have done that, if they'd have just let Bolshevism play itself out. I think quite possibly the whole uh, Lenin regime might have collapsed of its own accord. But what, uh, you know, I, 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 the civil war gave the Bolsheviks an opportunity to consolidate their regime on the only basis on which it could be consolidated over a long period of time. That's to say on the basis of violence, coercion, repression, um, tight control. Without the, the context of civil war, they may not have been, 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 been able to, to, uh, you know, to do that. Right, we, we shall have to leave it there unless we seize the commanding heights of the hall and continue the former Soviet and continue the debate for the, for the entire night, but I think, that, I think that might be slightly beyond us. I just want to thank very much Jeff, uh, Judith, Maria and David for a very stimulating conversation and thank you for coming along. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest. Hist